Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Kablamo. Kablamo, indeed. It's Weekly Weights. What episode are we? This is episode 82. I'm Alex. With I'm me Will. is Will. Always here. And today we're going to do a case study episode, but before we get into the case study itself, we've got some stuff to talk about. Social mm. media related. Alex, you had a gripe. You haven't told me what it is yet. Let's go. So my gripe is every powerlifter, it seems, out there who's done one competition is now an online coach. Oh, I went... Like, I agree. That is a gripe. Absolutely. It's a joke. But I think that's just the nature of the fitness industry because... Like, as in that, that itself is a microcosm of exactly how people end up in personal training, right? As you do something, you're like, wow, this is incredible. I had a really good time. I learned a lot about myself. I'm passionate about this. I want to bring other people into this thing. I'm going to make it my career. That's basically how personal trainers almost all start. I think I'm talking about more people who do it on the side. Like, you have a nine to five yeah. and you do powerlifting. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're an online coach as well. Yeah. Okay. To be fair, like not, I'm not dissing people who are actually personal trainers and compete in powerlifting, and then now want to coach people because that's exactly how I got into it. Yeah, I'm more talking about like, no, oh I'm, yeah, I've done a powerlifting competition, I'm qualified to help you type of type of issue. But what I am saying is that the majority of personal trainers end up as personal trainers because they have a positive experience with fitness and want to share it with other people. That's like the primary thing that motivates them to do it. Like you don't take an aptitude test in. Oh, I mean, you might take an aptitude test in school, but very few few people go. I'm going to be a PT. That seems to suit my strengths. They go. I like fitness. I'm going to be a PT. In the same way that people go. Wow, I did this powerlifting thing. I like it. I learned a lot about myself. I'm going to do it. You I'm, know? S- I'm not. I'm not talking about PT. Though. I'm talking about online coach. Like I, you literally haven't even done the Cert three and four. Yeah. You okay. have a separate <laughs> job. You've done like two powerlifting comps and you squat like 165. And now you're an online coach. Yeah, it's a bit dodgy. Um, Get your head out of your ass. Just make a meme account. Meme pages are fine. Anyone can have a meme account. I'm all for that. Okay, that's a... Memes are great. That's a good gripe and one that I can definitely get on board with. You're trying to make me feel bad about it just then. No, no. I was just saying that I think that that, what you are describing, is encapsulated in the way in which almost everyone gets involved in fitness. Sure. If you're going to get into fitness, immerse yourself fully in it and be in it fully. It's not a side thing, you know what I mean? Well, like we had Natalie Hansen on and she works in some like complicated environmental science in Alaska, which, which was super cool. And she also coaches on the side, right? Yes, but she's also been competing for 15 years. Okay, so there's some. So basically what you're saying is <laughs> there's a, some she, level she of qualification. She has legit experience. <laughs> yeah, there's some level of qualification you need to have and most people don't have it. Correct. Okay, well, I'm fully for that. And if you guys want to know some more about how to become a credible powerlifting coach, you can listen to the Q&A where we spoke about that at length, didn't we? Yes. The other um, discussion we were having off air before... Yeah, I want to talk about this because this is my social media gripe and it's personal. Okay, go for it. Not everything's about me, but this is very much about me. So first things first, I want to reveal that I've been running a social experiment for a long time. I post somewhere between three and five times a week something reasonably useful on my Instagram page or at least I like to think it's reasonably useful at the very least it's an attempt to be informative three to five times a week and for a fair while I was also trying to post immediately adjacent to it pictures of my dog because I wanted to see which ones got more attention from people invariably my dog Speak, speaking of your dog yeah Digby's lying here right now absolutely bored to death with what you have to say <laughs> yeah, well, that's not unusual so so first things first i'm a fitness professional no one cares they care about my dog and in another brilliant illustration of that yesterday i posted something about how you've got to be willing to change you know population level guidelines to suit the individual and reticence to change because it might defy those guidelines when the when the evidence of the individual in front of you suggests you ought to is not the way to best results so be willing to adjust in light of the information in front of you. Something where it's like, okay, you know, yeah, you could probably use that to be better at coaching or self-coaching, right? And then one story adjacent or two stories adjacent, 
I post a stupid troll post about how when you have Milo, you should basically fill the entire cup with Milo, which I absolutely stand by, right? About th- two responses, maybe three responses to my useful one. Over 50 so far to my Milo one, and it's only been up about 12 hours. It's still going. Oh, about 15 hours now. Still going. Guys, come on. Like, I'm here trying to help you. The second I stop helping is when everyone cares. What do you think, Alex? I think maybe there's an issue with your the content that's help. actually trying to help people. Oh, that doesn't say much for you. We've been running a podcast for 18 months. Yeah, we've got about four people listening. Yeah, probably. Um, anyway, we were, the important discussion we were having, though, after that was how much Milo actually goes in the cup. Because obviously, it was uh, to a small degree tongue-in-cheek when I said that you should have your cup overflowing with Milo. How much is the perfect amount, Alex, really? Okay, well, I'm going to go through my procedure of how I do it. Okay. Very important. Milk goes in first. No. Just categorically correct. <laughs> Milk goes in first. I can't even refute it because I was having a sip of water, but that is the wrongest thing anyone has ever said on the podcast. Let me finish. Ever. That is egregious. <laughs> Let me finish. <laughs> Milk goes in first. No. Fill up you, you fill up about half your cup with milk and then you fill the rest of the cup with about two centimeters of room at the top with Milo. When you make a protein shake, do you put the water in first? Yes. Unless I'm traveling with it, then I'll obviously have dry, the dry powder. <laughs> you are you are like so wrong. You're anyway. so <laughs> off base with that and the milk does not go in first. Do you put milk in first when you're making cereal? No. Okay, thank God. I was going to say you need your head checked. Anyway, let, so, let me finish. Let me finish. So wrong. Let me finish. You leave two centimeter gap at the top with Milo. How big of a cup are we talking? Uh, probably like five or six hundred mils. Okay. So like a large cup. Like like a cup that is 18 centimeters tall. I don't know. I haven't measured it. That's roughly. I'm making it. Okay, so we're calling about a 10% bit of like headroom. Yeah, enough space to stir and not spill. Yep. Stir and, you stir and don't spill, and then you get that perfect Milo-like crust on the top. Mm-hmm. You eat it, eat the crust, yep. and then you put the same amount of Milo back in dry <laughs> and stir it again. So That's how you have Milo. You've added, you've added the Milo to a liquid, which is wrong. Correct. And then you've eaten the Milo, which is correct, and then you've doubled down on adding the Milo to the liquid, which is wrong. Just do it and... I, just try it and tell me how good it is after. Dude, the best thing is I agree with you on the quantity. Like, I think about 50-50 Milo to milk is definitely best. But you put the Milo in first, right? And what happens is as you put the milk in, it will appear to be full. You'll get to that threshold that you've talked about, like the top 10% of the glass. And as you start to stir and you dig into the Milo, the milk goes down and you get this like really rewarding... like increased density this densification of your milo milk drink and it just is so chocolatey towards the bottom no like because because the milo creates like almost a seal at the bottom of the cup as you start to stir it the the milk penetrates the milo and it goes down and you get literally like percolation exactly like you're making a coffee but with milo and you just get this rich chocolatey milo stuff and then you can just dig your spoon out and eat it from there it's way better that way but have you done it my way no, I refuse to ever put trust, the milk in first. Trust me, man. It's the way. <laughs> you lost me when you said you have your protein powder in after the water in the protein shake. Or it the mixes, clearly mixes better. No. I'm, if you do it the other way, you get dry wait, so, protein stuck on the bottom. So you take a protein shaker to the gym. Just like this is... Let's talk 18-year-old bro, Alex. Protein shaker at the gym. No, And if then I'm, you're if, carrying a little Ziploc bag no, of protein. No, no, no. If, like if, a f- no, no, no. if I carry it... If I'm taking it with me, yeah. I take the powder in the shaker. Okay. And then add water. But if I'm doing it at home, water first or milk first. <sighs> Mix is better. Trust me. Nah, man. And I have some professional experience with this because I worked with Cronulla Sharks. Oh, is that when you were asked to yeah, <laughs> pour to make- out like a million protein shakes? <laughs> yeah, that's a story. I had to make protein shakes for the entire extended training squad one afternoon. And they all have their own shakers. And they all have different protein mixes and things depending on whether they're gaining or losing weight. And yeah, long story, but I made all 50-ish protein shakes and then was told to pour them out because I wasn't supervised and they were worried I was going to like put drugs in the shakes or something because they just had the supplement scandal. So I wasn't allowed to make the shakes without supervision. Remade the shakes. 
found out that the person supervising me wasn't authorized to supervise me had to re-pour them out again assistant coach of the Cronulla Sharks had to drive to the nearest Woolies and buy milk because we ran out of milk to make protein shakes and at that point I just said I'm so done with this and left um but anyway when I made protein shakes for them so professional setting minimum of 150 shakes made as experience we had to put the protein in first so that's just the correct way to do it. Cronulla absolutely suck at footy, so maybe that's why. Recent premiers, like four years ago? How many years ago? Mm. Three? It was close. Yeah, a few. Yeah. Okay, anyway. <laughs> that was that's a travesty. Um, we've probably lost everybody, but if we haven't, today we're talking about a case study that I put together, and this is exactly the program that one of my clients is following right now so up until now we've done case studies that have been designed to be illustrative this one we're going from the complete opposite direction we're saying we're saying this is what one of my clients are doing he has semi-unique goals and i'm basically going to try and explain my rationale for doing the things that i did and choosing the things that i chose and whereas in our other case studies i think we could probably quite confidently have said this is the best approach or at least close to the best approach that we could take with a you know a general individual going for x y and z goal and in the case of powerlifting because the goals are really well defined you basically have to turn up on one day and compete in squat bench press and deadlift and they're all equally important and all those things it's quite easy for us to sort of define bounds and say this is good or bad idea in this instance i've got somebody who is training for general strength but really he's most interested in hitting a triple bodyweight deadlift he wants to test his sumo deadlift and possibly his conventional if he feels like it as well he's not that interested in maxing out his squat or his bench press he just wants to keep training them semi-productively on the side and he wants to test just before the new year so i've written i've written a block attempting to peak both deadlifts but with the emphasis on sumo um he wants to train about four days a week and we're going to talk through how and why I've done it, and with with luck, some of my thinking will come to light in this episode. Um, so, Alex, do you want to do you want to maybe introduce us to what you thought when you saw the program, or any questions you have? Yeah. So, my first couple of questions you've already answered: who the client is, and uh, what the goals are, what the goals that he has are. He listens, actually. This is Chris. Remember Chris? Mantle? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was gonna ask. That was one of my next questions. Does he listen? Yeah, absolutely. He Can does. we talk shit about him? Oh, hundred percent. He'll love it. Also, by the way, I just listened to you on the Lift Performance Center podcast. Yeah, what you think? Good, except for you saying crap was a swear word because that's just that's just retarded. Man, this is coming from someone. <laughs> Sorry, on, you said dig deeper than that, bro. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's that you said that crap wasn't a swear word. Like as though it's not likely to offend people, so you can just say it. That's fine. Like I'm just making sure that as a guest, I'm being polite. But then you just doubled down and said that's retarded, which is so politically incorrect because any retards who listen to our podcast might be upset by you using their the term that describes them as a pejorative well i apologize yeah so sorry <laughs> not really he says all right so the question was who is he his name's chris does he listen yes he does quite enjoys it so the first question i had was obviously you're choosing to peak both deadlift stance at the same time yep but not the other lifts no not the other lifts. and my first question would would be would you be hesitant to do this to someone if they weren't um if they were a powerlifting client um, like, is this an approach that you, you know, might be okay with considering doing with someone who was a competitive powerlifter? I don't see why not, but I'd also have to see why, if that makes sense. So, like, if I had a powerlifter who, for some reason, just wanted to put a couple of lifts on the back burner and peak, peak, you know, one, or in this instance, peak both stances of the deadlift, there's no reason you can't do that. And if you wanted to compete in a deadlift-only comp, there's no reason you can't do that. But... For the majority of powerlifters, I don't think it serves their needs best to only focus on developing one lift. Like, Alex, how commonly among your clientele, if they said, I'm interested in being the best powerlifter I can be, would you say, okay, well, let's just peak your deadlift for eight weeks and not really worry much about the other two? Yeah, literally never. Yeah. But if there were an occasion where that was appropriate, I don't see why I wouldn't do this. I just wouldn't normally. 
So okay. hypothetically, what would be a scenario where this would be okay for a competitive powerlifter? Maybe like they have a lagging deadlift and they want to bring it up relative to the other two or... Yeah, maybe if you had a very lagging deadlift, but even then, if you have a lagging deadlift, you can normally do developmental work on the other two and you'll just need to skew things slightly to the deadlift rather than not worrying about them. So lagging deadlift might be an example if you were going to the extremes. Deadlift competition might be one. Perhaps having an injury that prevented you training your squat very hard and or a simultaneous injury that prevented you training your bench very hard, although in this instance he's still doing a decent amount of benching, um, would be an instance. Or, yeah, if you had a deadlift-only competition coming up and you just had a bit of wear and tear on the other two and just wanted to de-emphasize them and have some fun, so it was, it was yeah, more in the interests of fun than your true development, those would be, like, reasonable reasons you might do something like this. Yeah, so obviously this is a general strength client, and I guess the priority for for a client like that is keeping them happy and keeping them enjoying training. Yeah, exactly. So that's obviously why you've chosen to do that. Yeah, but and if, it's a gateway powerlifting client, definitely, I think. Yeah, he, I'll slowly trick him. You can tell he's intrigued. Yeah, he likes it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can think of a couple of reasons why this might be a good idea for a powerlifter as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them would be if you were going after a particular record. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you weren't too worried about the other two lifts. You just wanted to hit a record. You know, maybe it's an age group record or... Um, something like that whether there's a, it's time sensitive mm-hmm. um, the other would be if you have like some sort of injury holding you back with the other two and deadlifts doesn't provide the same issue okay you've just given me a great idea to get us some much needed clout on social media Kayla Woolham Dr. Deadlift pulled an all time world record deadlift do you remember exactly how many kilos it was 432 and a half I think how many pounds is that? 975? It was 950, wasn't it? Okay. Um, and what was his body weight? Under 220. Yeah, is that two, correct? Yeah, 220, yeah. Yeah, so absolutely incredible feat of strength. I want to be the first person to say that on the podcast. Incredible feat of strength, but surrounded perhaps unfortunately by some controversy because it was set at the Record Breakers event held at Super Training Gym where there was some pretty lax judging. I think most people would agree particularly on the squats and bench presses, although there were some deadlifts that were maybe a little bit shakily locked out. Um, And I don't think it's quite fair for somebody's all-time world record attempt to be perhaps tied with the same brush as some other lifters who had things waved through that were just a joke. Like there was one squat that's been doing the rounds on social media that Mm. was so outrageously high. Um, But again, the lifters can only do the lifts they do and either be awarded or not award them. So that's the judge's fault, not his. Correct. Anyway. The controversy about Kayla's world record deadlift attempt, and I hope I'm saying his name correctly, was that there appeared to be some type of an attempt to lift the bar where he took the slack out but didn't break the plates from the floor, then let the slack back out of the bar and then pulled the bar again and successfully completed the lift. And so the controversy has been, should that lift be allowed or disallowed? And how do we define... A genuine attempt and how do we define downward movement of the bar in the case of a deadlift bar where there's there's so much ability to bend the bar that the plates may not leave the floor even when a genuine attempt has been made like does a genuine attempt only commence when the bar has left the floor and if not why don't we just allow lifters to yank at the bar and if it doesn't leave walk off slap themselves in the face come back in and yank it again alex what are your opinions on this deadlift um i would have given it a no lift on two counts okay firstly the first attempt at the bar the bar actually I believe did break the floor there's a really good angle from basically directly behind him almost looking over the shoulder on Mark Bell's IGTV so if you want to look at this and make your own decisions do yeah go on Um, I believe that the bar did break the floor and then returned to the floor okay and then almost like bounced I mean obviously you're not going to be able to bounce 430 kilos yeah but he somehow locked it out from there that would have been a no lift because he first of all had a first attempt, bar left the floor, then he had a second attempt at the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would have been a red light for me. My my immediate impression watching it was that I would give it a red light as well um, because I saw the downward movement of the bar and it was actually after the fact when I thought, well, I like I personally don't believe that the plates left the floor, but if I watched it again really closely, I might change my mind. Um yeah, my first instinct was that I would give it a red light. And then after that, I thought, wow, there's so much ambiguity. And I think that referees should 
I mean, obviously the rules are designed to be reasonably objective, but I think referees should rule in favour of the lifter where there is ambiguity. So in the case of this one where, like, you've taken the slack out of the bar, perhaps the plates haven't left the floor, um, and then you've continued to pull it, I wouldn't call that downward movement because the entire complex of the bar didn't really move down, if that makes sense. The question is, does the first pulling the slack out of the bar constitute an actual attempt at lifting the bar? And I would say yes, but I'm also not sure whether you could call it two separate attempts entirely. So I would be, I'd be inclined to give it an uncomfortable white, but unfortunately it's just not like it's not completely without dispute. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot of his attempts look a little bit different to that one, which is mm. which is why I would have given him a red because he usually does take the slack out a little bit smoother and it doesn't look like a yank. And then he goes and yanks. Yeah. So it's kind of like in this instance, he yanked twice. So something he said on social media was that the USPA have changed the wording of their rule around the deadlift to say that basically um, the like an attempt starts when the bar leaves the floor. Um, and so downward movement can't be ruled against somebody if the plates haven't left the ground. And he's adamant that they hadn't. Were that the case... I'd be much more comfortable giving it a white. Would you agree with that? Well, that wasn't a USPA meet. No, it was an SPF meet. That's SPF what he's meet. saying. So. so he's saying that that rule in the SPF is not specific enough to deal with the fact that deadlift bars just have this degree of slack in them, like, naturally. Do you think that argument holds water? Um, yeah, I mean, if that's what the rule book says, that the bar has to leave the floor for it to be considered an attempt, then no, of in course... In the USPA it does. In the SPF it literally just says downward movement of the bar, but... It, but it obviously hasn't been adapted for the deadlift bar in the same way the USBA has. Yeah, well, if it's just downward movement of the bar in general, then most lifters would get reds because most people do like give the bar a bit of a a bit of a pull before they actually attempt. Yeah, I agree. So, um, I guess they just need to do a better job of creating the right wording. All right, so let's get the really hot weekly weights take on this that someone can forward to him, Stan Efforting, who was refereeing. And Mark Bell, so that we can maybe get some social media clout. Good lift, bad lift. Three, two, one. Three, two, one. No lift. You know, ooh, I just made a grunting noise to hear what you'd say. Alex Hayes says no lift. I already Come said it was a no lift. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this case study. We've gotten very off track. But he got he got whites, so whatever. You can't like honestly. <laughs> yeah. It's the same as the the Dave Hoff conversation that we had last week. Like, yeah. you can't be mad at the lifter. No, hundred percent. It's not. It's not his he issue. He didn't go in with sinister intent. Yeah, he's not deliberately, like, double bouncing the bar so that he can make it. Because if anything, that would have made it harder. But you are saying he's a weak dog, aren't you? No. <laughs> you should have doubled down and said absolutely. Um, uh, all right, Kayla, if you want to come on the podcast and explain <laughs> yeah. yourself, you can. Yeah, absolutely. Open invitation. I mean, we do like deadlifts, so that'd be fun. Um, Anyway, so we've got this block for my lifter. <laughs> we've been very off track so far. I've um, got this block for my lifter. So he's he wants to deadlift triple body weight. That's actually why he started training with me, although I convinced him to do some basic strength work on the side of that, which I think was appealing to him. Um, he is best deadlift prior to starting with me. Guys, if you have the program open in front of you, there's two tabs. Um, the first tab is just a planning tab where there's some basic information so you can understand what I'm doing. The second tab is the first four weeks of the program, exactly as he was sent it. The reason I didn't write the next four weeks of the program out, uh, one, because I want to adapt it in light of how he's going after the first four weeks, and two, because he's a listener to the show and on the mailing list, I'm certain that he would just fire me and, and keep his four weeks' worth of coaching fees and just go hit the PB, <laughs> <laughs> the dog. So, um, But there's a planning document. We'll talk about the first four weeks in some detail. And then I'll explain why I would why I would structure the final few weeks the way that I have because there's some differences. All right. So prior to starting with me, I'll just give them some orientation. Prior to starting with me, he had deadlifted 220 sumo and 210 conventional. He'd never worn a belt. Um, and the 220 sumo was not too bad. Um, pretty difficult, a little bit shaky technically. Um, and he recently pulled 230 sumo beltless quite clean and pulled to a seven and a half conventional beltless quite clean as well with me we're introducing a belt for this block um his primary issue in the sumo deadlift is that he tends to shift forward on his foot and keep his knees in the way during the pull and so the bar gets away from him as a result so he needs to work on having a slightly higher hip position and just sitting back and pulling the bar in a bit more um and his hardest workouts at the end of last block were the two singles i just said and then in the case of the sumo, five sets of four at 192 and a half kilos. And in the conventional, four sets of four at 185 kilos. And both of those workouts were 
subjectively and objectively pretty hard. So he wants to try and pull over 240 kilos at the end of this block. Alex. Cool. So his body weight's about 80. That'd be three times? Yeah. Okay. Well, he's um, a bit over 80 now because he's fat. He's going to need 245. Yeah, I know. No, um, we might get there. Something that's kind of a bit of a hot topic on social media right now, Will, is using a belt for sumo deadlifts. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of lifters who don't. Yeah. And Kayla Woolen's a good example who we just spoke about. JP, Jason Clark from New Zealand. Yep. Liz Craven pulls very close to her best without a belt. How important do you think a belt is for a sumo deadlifter? I think it depends. And I'm not just saying that as a cop-out. I think there's like there's there's a reasonable rationale, I think, for why it would depend. I think if you pull with a very upright torso position, then probably you will get less out of a belt and possibly the belt also will just obstruct you getting into the most comfortable position you can. I think the less favorable your leverages are generally for sumo or the more bent over you are generally, the more that wearing a belt will likely help you. But in my experience, even when I just play around with sumo, the amount that I get out of a belt is much less than for conventional. And if I were to assume that part of the difference is in my torso position, then that would make sense as well, what I just said. Basically, the more upright you are, the less you tend to benefit from it. And if you think about, you know, JP quite an upright torso when he pulls sumo Liz Craven like her hips are nearly at the bar when she pulls sumo um, and so for those two there doesn't appear to be much of a difference at all what do you think yeah I agree entirely I yeah. think a lot of people get some sort of security out of a belt because mm. it makes them feel like they're bracing better yeah um, and in doing that they're able to shift more weight so then it is helpful yeah um, but then there are others who don't feel the same way and like you said get obstructed by the belt and that actually stops them getting in a good position in fact if i can say one other thing that i think supports that inference that i just made it's that a number of people that i've i've observed who actually deadlift technically better conventional and deadlift more sumo are really crappy at bracing right and so what i think almost happens is they can pull conventional but then once it actually gets reasonably hard or they need to create some stability through their torso they suck at it and so they just lose all shape and miss their conventional. Whereas in the sumo, because their torso is a bit more upright, they almost have a bit of wiggle room to not quite brace as well. That's my that's my inkling. I'm not certain, but I've seen that across a number of my clients. There could be other reasons as well. But that's, some, that's something that I just tend to think. Anyway, more upright you are, the less I think it'll help. All right, cool. Let's go back to what we're actually supposed to be talking about. We've, yeah, we've done like two minutes on it and like 15. How many minutes in are we? Um, yeah, we're about 15 minutes in. All right, let's talk about the program. All right, so then. let's go through the general outline of yep. the program. Yep. Um, just explain day by day what each what each session looks like. So there's four sessions in the week. Yep. Um, just go through what days one, two, three, and four look like. Okay, so day one is his main sumo deadlift day um, and he follows that with a lat exercise um, and he's got, in this instance, pendulum or hack squats, so a compound quad exercise. Um, this is all just hypertrophy work after the main sumo stuff, and then a hamstring exercise. Um, he's got lying leg curl written in the program now, but because he's been doing that day with me, he's been doing a glute ham raise on that day and putting his leg curls on day three. But basically, main main sumo day, tiny bit of back work, tiny bit of leg work, bit of hamstring work. Um, day two is his main is his main bench press day um main bench press day or is one of his bench press days so some bench work pause and touch and go and then some upper body accessory stuff day three is his main conventional deadlift day and he's also got some secondary sumo work remembering that sumo is his priority on that day so it goes conventional deadlifts then secondary sumo work that's quite light um little bit of back and hamstring accessory stuff and single legged work and then day four, he's got some squats that are um, in the blo- in the block prior to this. He was doing the same the same set and rep scheme, but about ten percent heavier than is in this block now. So it's some like low to moderate effort squatting, followed by some more upper body work. So some heavyish bench, um, and then some back and upper body accessory stuff. Cool. So let's just go over um, the training variables mm-hmm. and how they. Uh, how they refer to this program so what are the frequency of each of the lifts so the squats only once so he's got one actual squat day and then his second exposure to the squat pattern is just the pendulum or hack yep. squat after his main deadlift yep. day and so one squat really two benches and two deadlifts correct and then just a uh, 
broad sort of covering of accessory work that covers the whole body. Yeah. And I've just tried to concentrate the accessory work in sort of the least interfering places. Okay. So what about the intensity? Um, so if you go back to the planning page, that's probably the most important one to look at. Because I think other than me saying that his squats are about 10% easier than they have been, um, we don't really need to worry much about squat and bench press stuff. Just presume yeah, just, that's sensible. Just talking about the intensity and the volume of the deadlift, I've got yeah. some questions about the bench next. So sure. talk about the deadlift first. Okay, so in the case of the deadlift, for the first four weeks, I'm having him pull his heavy sumo and conventional stuff on alternate weeks, right? And so on the days that he is doing, or on the weeks that he's doing heavy sumo stuff, he has moderate difficulty conventional work and so on and so on. The spacing, the intensity spacing between the heavy and moderate days, they're about 15% apart, Um Alex might do a quick numbers check on that, but they're about 15% apart. Um, And as far as establishing what the intensities he should be lifting are on his heavy days. So again, if you look at the planning document, I've worked back from the target numbers that I'd like him to hit in his final heavy sessions um, in five to seven and a half kilo spaces to, to see what the heavy intensity or the heavy session peak intensity should be. So in the case of the sumo deadlift, for him to be prepared to pull ideally 240 kilos, but possibly more um, in his in his testing week, I want his final heavy pull to be around 235 kilos, which means the one prior to that can be 230, the one prior to that can be 222, the one prior to that 215, and the one prior to that 207. So that's how I established what those heavy intensities ought to be. And I've done the same thing basically for his conventional deadlifts. Um, and then, yeah, the moderate ones are just 15% lighter. Cool. So you alluded to it there, but the first four weeks of the program, there's only one heavy session for the deadlift and it mm-hmm. alternates in the week. So one week is sumo, the next week is conventional. Yeah. Why did you decide to do it like that? Uh, why did I decide to do it like that? Okay, two things. One, doing two equally heavy or difficult deadlift sessions per week is really hard, um, even if they're in opposite stances. So that's... That's the first reason. The second reason is that he's actually already hit reasonably close to his goal intensity, um, already close-ish to his goal intensity prior to starting this. So I didn't think there's any reason to push him massively hard from where he is currently. Um, That's the second one. And, oh, sorry, and tied to that is that if I space out those, those heavy and moderate sessions and things across eight weeks, I can go from, I can get to where he needs to be from where he is now with those spaced so they're the fir- they're the two main reasons and then the other one is that i do want him to be doing a reasonable volume of deadlifting in this first phase as well and i think there'd just be a trade-off if i tried to make both days actually have relatively high intensities he wouldn't be able to do the extra volume work that i want him to do on say his secondary sumo work after his conventional stuff it'd just be a bit too much given that squats are taking a backseat mm-hmm. do you think there'd be a little bit more room to push deadlifts a little bit more twice a week? I think so, but I'm not comfortable to say how much more. I think we've kind of spoken about this in other episodes of the podcast. Definitely you could do deadlifts a little bit more, but remember when we were talking about programming the deadlift and we spoke about maybe how you would program somebody for a deadlift only comp and both of us said you might deadlift twice a week still. Unlikely that you would have a third deadlift in the week and you don't know how much harder that would be just because most people don't need that much more volume and they can't necessarily recover from it enough to do it well i i have a feeling the same thing is going to hold here and that he won't need a lot more than one hardish deadlift a week and he won't be able to handle a whole lot more volume that would probably be some just yeah some but not heaps is what i think yeah cool um so in the final three loading weeks Mm -hmm. there are three heavy sumo days and only one conventional yeah why is this In the case of the conventional, it's lower priority, so he doesn't need as many heavy loading weeks. That's number one. Number two, in order order to facilitate him having more exposure to heavy sumos, which he needs because that's the priority, he can't have as many heavy conventional deadlifts. Again, for the exact same logic I just said, only this time the weights are 10% heavier, so it's even more true. Um, And then the third thing is that the conventional is probably less technical than the sumo deadlift. So also probably doesn't need as much total exposure for him to be peaked for it. So you can probably do 
a heavy conventional deadlift in week six, do a light conventional deadlift in week seven of this program. He's testing in week eight, do a taper deadlift session at the start of week eight and still be somewhere reasonably prepared to lift heavy-ish at the end of week eight. You know, having that two-week gap there is not unreasonable, but having a having a big gap for sumo would be. So c- continuing the alternating structure wouldn't let him get enough exposure to peak the sumo really well and wouldn't necessarily benefit his conventional a whole lot, I think. Okay. So the other question that I had regarding the last couple of weeks is I mentioned that there was one heavy conventional session mm-hmm. and it's in week six. Yep. Um, yet there's still a heavy sumo that same week and then there's also a heavy sumo the following week. Yeah. So you've got three heavy deadlift sessions within a seven-day period. Yes, I do. Do you think that's a little bit close to too much intensity? That might be. But again, I haven't written those, I haven't written those three loading weeks out yet. And I suspect that when I do, depending on how he's handling it, I'll pull back on some of the deadlifts there. So something to note is the secondary sumo work in the first four weeks is actually a variation. And then it just becomes, I just wrote light deadlifts, like light sumo deadlifts in that time. So that's going to be comparatively much easier. So there's already going to be a little pullback there. If it has to pull back even further or drop for that week, I probably will. And likely the conventional volume will also be tapering by that stage. So it probably won't be as big of a deal. And then the final thing to consider is that when you look at the program layout, which I'm basically intending to keep, the conventional deadlifts happen in day three, which for him is normally a Thursday. And the heavy sumos happen on the Monday. So really what he's going to do is pull a heavy sumo on the Monday, which won't completely tax him for conventionals. He'll pull a hard conventional on the Thursday. He'll then have three days off, then do another sumo. He'll be only light deadlifting after that for the rest of that week. So that's Monday through Friday. Then he'll probably do some taper deadlifts on the Monday of the week after, and then he'll pull on the Saturday. So there's actually a lot of recovery between that concentrated period and when he actually goes to test. So do I think it'll be a lot? Yeah. But do I think it'll be survivable? Yeah. And do I think he'll recover by the time he tests? Probably. Um, but, you know, it'll be something to be mindful of when we get there, yes. Yeah, so given the volume will be quite low in, in those sessions, and then given the time that you have between the last heavy and the testing, it's probably enough time to recover from the fatigue. Yeah, and I think if we go back to our, um, if we go back to our analogy about, about peaking for a comp and, you know, where, like when we've dropped out squats, you asked that question earlier, having dropped out squats, do we have more wiggle room? If you think of the sumo deadlift as a little bit akin to a squat because it is more squat like than the conventional you're a little bit more upright you use a bit more quads what you're really looking at when you say there's a heavy sumo conventional at the opposite end of the week then a heavy sumo again it's a bit like saying we have our second heaviest squat then late that week we have our heaviest deadlift then three or four days later we have our heaviest squat and then we taper and and relax into the meat right it's not dissimilar structure well it is because his sumo is a greater load than his conventional yeah, so yeah, that's dissimilar. It's more like the other way around. It, like it is, but I think that most people would agree that pulling heavy sumo is not quite as taxing as pulling heavy conventional. Would you? Yeah, I agree. But so I also, like, but I also think that a sumo deadlift is closer to a conventional deadlift than it is to a squat. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, but all I'm saying is that in terms of structure, that distribution of stress is not completely abnormal when we think about how we peak for a normal comp. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do agree. Okay. Um, next question. Um, okay. So for the squat and bench press, how have you chosen to train them without interfering too much with the deadlift peak? How much how much volume would you consider to be too much volume? And how have you kind of managed this? Um, I'll start with the bench press because I don't think that the bench press is going to interfere much with the deadlift at all. Unless you happen to be somebody where arching heaps like makes your lower back get jacked up or something, it's just not going to interfere much. He trains his bench press on separate days to his deadlift. He does his upper body pressing on his separate days to his deadlift, and he can just do it fine. Like, you can think of his deadlift as concentrated to two days and his bench as concentrated to two others. Um, for his upper body accessories, though, I've tried to keep his, um, his actual heavy lat work separate from his deadlift days. So you'll see that he has his lat pull down on day one um, and then only horizontal rows on the bench days preceding his normal deadlift days. Um, and that's just because like vertical pulls are more lat intensive. And so that's probably slightly more interfering with the deadlift. 
But otherwise, I think you can pretty much leave bench alone. On on that point of um, back training, mm-hmm. would you choose to use back exercises that sort of don't load the uh, lower back isometrically, like you would kind of avoid doing barbell rows in yeah. this kind of a program, and you'd kind of go single arm dumbbell row or cable row versus a barbell or penlay row? Um, I think it would depend on where it's placed. So in the structure that we have here, yes, I would avoid doing lower back intensive rows. So like if you're doing a horizontal row on day two and you've got conventional deadlifts on day three, I would say that doing a barbell row or, a, or like a penlay row or something would not be the best idea. But if you were doing your back training on the same day as your deadlift training, then I could absolutely see them being fine. And again, if you look at a lot of like the classic power building programs where people are deadlifting and doing back training on the same day, they were doing that stuff all the time. So that would be fine. Yeah, the biggest thing for me with that is grip. If I do like five sets of hard deadlifts and then I have to do pull-ups, rows, my grip is shot. You couldn't just strap up for your rows? Yeah, I could. Yeah. Um, but yeah, otherwise, no. I don't think I don't think that's a big deal. I do, I do sometimes in my other clients' programs when they have rows the day prior to their deadlift, I specify, if I say it's your choice of row, I'll say your choice of chest-supported row um, for that reason. Or, you know, I'll make sure... Like, cable rows actually do work your back extensors a little bit, but they're not very taxing. I'll make sure to specify that it's something not enormously hard. But the main thing is I just don't think doing heaps of lat volume the day prior to deadlifting is smart um, either. So I tried to split them up. Other than that, not much interference with the bench press. As far as the squat goes... um, the reason I put his squats on day four was because I didn't want to do them after a deadlift on one of his deadlift days. I thought that that would be really taxing and probably feel really bad and be hard for him to get quality squats in. And I didn't want to do them. Well, I didn't want to do them the day prior to one of the deadlift days. And it didn't really make sense when I started writing the program up. So I thought I'd put them on day four and then presuming that he was already going to be tired from having done some pretty hard deadlifting the day prior to that. And just presuming that they're lower priority, I just made them 10% lighter than they have been previously, so they're not too hard. And then his second squat exposure or his second exposure to quad stimulus is after his main sumo stuff as well in the form of accessory work. So so that's how I've reduced the interference in that instance as well. And I don't... Like, he's only, I think, at the end of week two of this program right now, and he hasn't said that the squats have been at all difficult, so I wouldn't presume that they are. So to summarize with bench, you haven't really changed anything to what you would usually do? Not really. And with the squat, you've made the barbell squat day a little bit lighter than you usually would. Is that a low bar or a high bar? Uh, he squats low bar, but okay. he's, he's a very upright squatter. His background's actually in gymnastics, so he's like extremely mobile. Um, his squat's not very taxing on his back at okay. all. So you've chosen a a low bar variation loaded a little bit lighter and then on the other day you've chosen to remove the axial loading completely and go with something that just hits the quads yeah i mean actually strictly it doesn't remove the axial loading if you're using a pendulum squat just because the weight's sitting on your shoulders but it's you're not bending over under the load if that makes sense yeah yeah different thing yeah anyway yes that was all my questions will really yep um did you have anything that you sort of did that was out of the ordinary that is worth discussing um i think well there's one thing that i think we should address which is um which is the way in which i did the secondary sumo days um and actually the probably the differences in set structure on the main loading days but the secondary sumo days so after his conventional deadlifts um he has secondary sumo work and in the first four weeks i chose a low block ball um, a low block pull and it says bar elevated approximately two inches and I wrote some more instructions there yeah it says controlled break off of the blocks and the reason I did that was to address the technical issue that I said that he happens to sink forward over the bar as he goes to pull um, and then the reason that that transitions just to light deadlifts a few weeks out is both because I just want him to have that extra practice at sumo so I said I said before for the same reason that we want the last three loading weeks to have heavy sumo work um, is because he needs more exposure to that lift to be peaked for it. Likewise, I want him to have more practice at the lift with lightweights on his secondary sumo day. But then the other one is also that I just want to absolutely minimize any interference from doing from doing a variation. So I, I've chosen a variation basically to try and address the technical issue that he has. And then I want him to start integrating that and reducing his fatigue by making that day even easier 
whilst also getting more practice moving to light sumo later in the block. So how hard objectively would those um, block pull sets be? Pretty easy to like, begin with. Like sub sub six RPE? Yeah, I would say so. Um, bearing in mind that they are coming after conventional work, so they like he might actually say that they feel more like RPE six to seven, but in reality like they're probably going to be easier than that, like five to six and worry to do them fresh like four. Okay. So quite so, easy. So another question I would have, often when I'm trying to um, sort of ingrain a movement pattern, I would mm. use that first before the sort of quote-unquote hard sets. Yep. Why did you choose to use the block pull after the conventional instead of using it first, given that sumo is the priority here? Uh, that's just a value judgment. Because although Sumo is the priority, he still wants the option to try and peak his conventional. And I think were he to try and do hard conventional training after the after doing the block balls, even if they are kind of RPE 5 to 6-ish, I, I still think that the conventional training would suffer and probably suffer more than the Sumo training would suffer coming after conventional. Um, I'm not sure if you would agree with that, but... But yeah, that was sort of my thinking is basically I want him to train the conventional still hard. I want him to still peak the conventional hard and he can do this then. And also him doing this under fatigue means I can afford to program it even lighter and still probably be reasonably beneficial. Cool. Um, one more thing on that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that the conventional is much less skillful. So mm-hmm. it probably requires a little bit less intensity and a little bit less total work. Mm-hmm. Um, again, why why would we not put the block pull first given it's a priority, especially given we don't really need to do a lot of conventional deadlifting to still peak it, I guess? It's less skillful and it needs less work. I agree with or I agree with both of those premises, but I don't think that that necessarily means that you should do it under more fatigue. I think they're different things. Well, I so, think I think my point is, why not make the block pulls a little bit harder do and first. then do easier conventionals afterwards? Because although although I don't think you need... I think you still need sufficient exposure to heavy weights. That's number one. And number two, fatigue limits how heavy of a weight that you can lift. So I don't, I don't think that doing your heaviest conventionals under fatigue are a good idea. Um... And I also think that although it is less technically demanding than a sumo, being fatigued still interferes with your ability to execute heavy lifts well technically. Um, and particularly in the case of the of the conventional deadlift, once your hip extensors start to get tired, you lose back position, you don't pull necessarily in the way that you want to um, or necessarily exert as much force as you could. So I think the training effect for, for conventional will be better. Like it's not there's a non-negligible trade-off in doing it after the sumo stuff we already have a day in which sumo is prioritized and just by virtue of having a second exposure at all to sumo it's still prioritized over the conventional deadlift and you've probably traded off a little bit on total conventional deadlift volume just to have that day in there so i think like either option is a trade-off but this is the trade-off i've chosen and i i think it is the better of the two though I'm not 100% certain, that's why. Yeah, I would actually agree with you. I just want to, wanted your rationale. Yeah, well, fair enough. You don't have to be so fucking rude about asking. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to have a break and do an underrated overrated? No, I've, got, I've got one more question. Go. Um, for the actual testing week, mm-hmm. how will that go yep. um, chronologically? And how will you ensure that you can actually get a close to maximal performance in both of the stances? Um, how I was I thought you were going to say how will that go like what am I predicting for his it's gonna results be, it's going to go terribly yeah probably terribly um, uh, how will it go so so I already said probably he'll do some taper deadlifts on the Monday I would say it would be a slightly harder sumo than conventional just like objectively but he'll do a tiny bit of sumo work and a little bit of conventional work after um and then probably on the Tuesday, he'll just train upper body like normal. Then on the Thursday, he'll probably do some light upper body. And then on the Friday or the Saturday, he'll test his sumo. I don't know if he'll, I don't know if I'll tell him to do an extra taper session on the deadlifts after the Monday one. Don't think he'll need it. So probably not. So on the Friday or Saturday, he'll test. And what he has said is he'd like to, if he's going to do them, do them both in one day. 
um, just because he doesn't want to come to the gym and max out twice, which is fine. And I also think that if he were to leave himself, like if he were to do it on Friday, then come back for conventional on Saturday, he'd be cooked and be bad anyway. So he's basically just going to max out his sumo. And then I said, if you're going to do conventional, what I would do is you know, take five or 10 minutes, have a break, you know, sip some Powerade or something, drop the weight down to something moderate, like your second or third normal warm up, and then start working up from there in singles only. So that's probably what he'll do. He'll pull, you know, hopefully 242 to five sumo, drop down to like 150, 160 conventional, pull it for one, make a 30 kilo jump, pull it for one, make a 20 kilo jump, pull it for one, and then just keep jumping in, you know, 15, then 10, then five kilo increments until he pulls something he's satisfied with. And hopefully he'll PB. Cool. So how do you envision the conventional going after doing the sumo? How much, how much fatigue do you really think um, will be there? A decent amount. I Were I to max my sumo and then work up to my conventional max, I think it would make me a non-negligible amount of fatigue, but probably not like incredibly. Well, I think for you, it's going to be a lot a lot different because you're a lot stronger. Yes, but I'm also, I'm actually much less competent at sumo. So like, you know, I like I could probably, if I really tried, pull like 265 sumo, maybe. maybe okay, well then let's say, let's say it's JP where the 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 same applies with Chris mm. in that his sumo is probably like 15 to 10 or 15% better than his conventional mm. yet he's as strong as you yeah. swapped um well in the case of JP I I actually think that his conventional wouldn't be enormously affected as weird as that sounds because he just tolerates doing hard sumo deadlifts really well um possibly because he's so well built for it and that's why he you know happens to be a prior world world record holder um i don't think that it would i don't think it would interfere hugely i reckon he might lose seven kilos or something off his conventional so that's like three-ish percent three four percent um i think that would be that would be about what i would expect so maybe maybe chris will pull 240 or something on the sumo and then he'll work up conventional and pull 222 when he might have otherwise pulled 227 or something like that okay but like that's still a pb you know and even were he to work up and pull 212 and say that was pretty hard and i'm really tired that it'd still be more than he's ever pulled before only this time he was tired and like he's a personal trainer he could easily rationalize that and say that's a success so that's what i expect though about probably five to ten kilos off his best cool yeah magic number i think seven yeah all right let's have a break and then we'll do overrated underrated properly rated we're back with underrated overrated properly rated yes we are would you like me to go first will uh can i go so that i don't forget mine yes because alex came very prepared for underrated overrated properly rated today um i I thought i was like staring at my paper writing something thinking about what I was going to write down for about 10 minutes before I left the home, before oh, I left really? home. Yeah, I was so like, yours I can't think one. of anything. Okay. But I, I got one. Okay, good. Well, <laughs> mine, I'm not sure mine's a good one, but it's a bit, it's a bit left of field. Elbow sleeves. And when I say properly rated, like, well, actually, I want to let you go first, and then I'll prompt you with my actual thinking. Go on. Elbow sleeves. Um, okay. Elbow sleeves aren't allowed in competition. Yeah. In any federation that I'm aware of. Yeah, I'm not sure they're adv- they're not advertised as being allowed in competition, though, no, to be fair. But I don't think I've ever actually seen anyone wear them. They might be allowed in some equipped federations or something. Who knows? Probably not. I don't think so. Okay, so they're not allowed in any competition. So it's assumed, that they, it's assumed that they provide an advantage, given that that's the rules, right? Yeah. It's, it's assumed. Yes. I'm, I don't necessarily think they provide an advantage. Okay. But I do think that they can provide some support if you have like, as Sebastian or Reb would call it, penis elbow. Yeah. Um, Shout out. Especially Seb. for low bar squatting and then benching mm-hmm. straight after or the next day after low bar squatting. Yep. Um, do I think they provide support? Probably not. Are they really very readily used? No, not really. I know a few people who use them. Brett Gibbs was using them for a while. That's just massive appeal to authority. I don't know if he still does use them regularly, but he was training with them, I think, because he had some penis elbow. Yeah. My client, Scott, who has dreadful mobility, <laughs> he, he uses them. 
um, because his elbows just get very sore. I think it, I think my rating depends on the purpose. Um, overrated, underrated, properly rated elbow sleeves as far as performance goes. Overrated, I don't think they help. Overrated, underrated, properly rated as far as support goes. Properly rated. I don't think that you can be intellectually consistent and say that you think knee sleeves help and elbow sleeves don't. Well, people mostly use um, elbow sleeves for squatting. No, I've seen lots of people use them bench pressing. Hmm. I suspect that they help a very small bit and I think people get them knowing that they aren't allowed to use them in competition and use them purely as a training aid to make themselves feel healthier for which I would say that they are properly rated. Agreed. I certainly don't think they're underrated. I wouldn't be saying, hey, everybody go get some elbow sleeves. It's going to make things better. Agreed. But I don't think anybody realistically expects them to do much other than just facilitate them training comfortably. Agreed. So, properly rated. Didn't you say underrated? I said overrated for actually providing a performance benefit. Maybe for bench press, but no, but I, I think, don't think so. I don't so. think anybody expects them to make a huge one. I think they expect them to make a very small one for bench. I think comfort-wise, if, okay, if comfort leads to increased performance, then sure, properly rated. Well, in the same way that you get improved proprioception and stability from wearing knee sleeves when you squat... I think it's compression. I think it's different because uh, in the bench you have to pause. And, I don't think it's different. And that actual, like, hitting the bottom and coming up can actually, like, stop some people from going fast. No, Whereas is- in the bench you actually want to be stable and controlled the whole time to the chest you're just wrong i disagree with no, you um no there's a law and it's shitting me that i don't know it because bloody tom clark spoke about it in his session with me um you know when you pull a spring it's it's still got all the spring energy for as long as it's pulled right like it elastic energy doesn't dissipate well if you stretch if you stretch the neoprene it stays stretched it doesn't dissipate so no nah just wrong so that's what i think firstly i don't think it really stretches though it's straight uh, you bend your elbow you don't think a knee um an elbow sleeve have you actually ever worn elbow sleeves no i I didn't i have a pair and (laughs) oh i'll wear them give them to me i don't think that would fit you why not they'd be way too big for your fucking small cow arms the only problem with wearing (laughs) elbow sleeves you remember that awesome libra ad for the for the literally look like a power ranger You know the the ad for the um for the pads that Libra did, where the guy was putting them on his body and going and pretending he was like a Power Ranger and going when he was wearing the pads on. Yeah, his one arms. of my mates dressed up as that guy for a Halloween party. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, your turn. All right, overrated, underrated, or properly rated? Powerlifters having intra workout carbs. This just depends on the person because there is there is reason to think in certain instances that it would be beneficial, but it's not going to make the world of difference in most cases. So if you're completely in denial, like if you say that there's no benefit at all to having any intra-workout carbs when you're doing longish sessions of high-ish volumes, or even if you're just doing longish sessions of heavy weights then i think that you're kidding yourself and there's probably some benefit if you think that it's going to make the world of difference and it's going to spur heaps more adaptation and you'll be able to train a million times harder and it's more important than just having adequate total carbs and calories then you're wrong as well um and if you think hey it's a potentially useful tool for the times when it's situationally appropriate then you probably properly rate it so it's very hard for me to say on the whole I'm saying like for the general powerlifting community on like the general powerlifting community's take on okay so let's say, carbs yeah. what how do you rate that I'm, okay general powerlifting community I'm going to say overrated and here's why agreed here's why is the general powerlifting community train for like that well they probably take two hours when they could take forty five minutes. And they use intra-workout carbs as an excuse to bring donuts and lollies to the gym to bribe other powerlifters to be their friends. So, so in that instance, definitely overrated. But there's like a physiological rationale for saying that some might actually help here and there. What do you think? Well, I think that 
most trainees overrate the importance of carbs during training. Okay. Um, because, like you said, it only has a small benefit in the right circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the majority of powerlifters who don't really train that hard and could do their sessions much quicker if they stopped scrolling through Instagram in the middle of sets. Yeah, pulled a finger out and just tried. Yeah, um, they probably don't need them. Yes. But and like they, they may think that because their session takes two and a half hours, that that makes it a long and strenuous and hard session when in reality it's actually not. Yeah, it's two hours of Instagram and <laughs> yeah. 30 minutes of pretty subpar lifting. Definitely true. But here's the thing. Like, okay, if you're doing like very high volume bodybuilding style workouts that take 90 minutes, then there's a good reason to think that having some carbohydrates are going to help, right? Um, you know, the exercise is highly glycolytic, like it'll reduce a bit of fatigue and stuff. That's all like, that's all fine. Probably helps. Um, evidence to back it up. That's fine. For strength performance, I think if you are like, even during peaking when the volumes of training are very low, there still might be benefit to consuming a little bit of carbohydrate during the session because it may, and I'm saying this like, I'm not certain, but I suspect that it would have a it would have some benefit in reducing some of the central fatigue that we experience. So if you haven't listened to the episode with Luke, I'd suggest doing that. Um, it may reduce fatigue a bit as well um, when you're lifting very heavy weights. So again, it may be of benefit then. And in the middle of the road training, there's probably no harm to it, and it might have a benefit that's just not very robust. So I guess it's never like a terrible thing to do unless you're like trying to lose weight, in which case like, you know, worry about how much you're having. But if you were trying to lose weight, then you might also be able to make the case for having your carbs skewed to around training to facilitate best performance. So like, there's never a bad time to do it. I just think that if you don't train very hard, you're, you're probably kidding about your rationale for doing it, you know, which I think is what you're saying too. Yeah, I think I'm. I think the context I'm using is like, the general powerlifter who does like, you know, a four by five in an hour. Just name and shame. Go no, on. no, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Well, I'm going to name and shame. I've done enough naming and shaming. <laughs> yeah. You never do any. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to change it today because I want to talk about our friend Troy Iron Guts Conley. Do you remember oh him? Oh <laughs> my god, do I remember Troy? So Alex and I, when we worked at Willoughby Fitness first, befriended an absolute legend of a man named Troy. Who got really keen, <laughs> really keen on strongman for a while, and when we say really keen, I mean he made his life strongman. He used to take steaks to work and use the work jaffle maker to cook his steak at lunchtime, and he got the nickname Iron Guts Conley because when he was um, when he was most interested in bulking up for strongman, he would bring chocolate milk and Krispy Kreme donuts to the gym and be swigging chalky milk and eating donuts between sets. And it was quite a sight to behold. Do you remember that, Alex? It often it was often strawberry milk. Was it strawberry milk? And it, it wasn't like a little... It wasn't a little 600 mil carton. No, no, it two was liters. a two liter... <laughs> two liter oak. <laughs> and like a, a 12 pack of Krispy Kremes. This bloke's legitimately eating... 2800 calories during a session easily doing like doing like i don't know 10 singles on deadlifts and that's it yeah he would do oh look he would come in with like 10 sets of three at 70 percent or something programmed and then he would say i'm just feeling it today coach these are like quotes i'm just feeling it today coach i've got that jungle strength he used to speak about jungle strength all the time because his deadlift technique was not the best and then That's he would a nice just, way of putting it. And then he would just cut sick and max out. And that was him every day. So he'd just max out and eat donuts. And how did he go? He got pretty strong. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, he got stronger than when he started. But yeah, Troy Iron Guts Conley, shout out to you for the ultimate, ultimate intra-workout carb protocol. Krispy Kreme and strawberry oak. All right, guys, that's been Weekly Ways for the week. I'm Will. We should say that next week's actually going to be an informative episode. Um, if you've gotten this far. Today wasn't informative. What do you mean? Today was pretty informative. We spoke about Milo. We spoke about oak chocolate milk, Krispy Kreme. Lots, um, of, lots of milk chat. Today. Lots of milk chat this week. Lot, yeah, lots of milk. Weekly weights. Got also, go to intro workout carb. What is yours? Oh, this is boring. Like Powerade. Oh. Okay, go, go to intro workout. Carb that my mum used to send. Food carb. Apricot delights. Yeah. Yes. Nice. Yours? Um, red frogs probably 
Yeah, they're pretty good. No, but you remember when we were training, you, Doug, Jules, and I were training together for Uzbekistan. Mum would send me with snack packs for training because our sessions would take like two and a half hours. And she'd always send the packet of apricot delights for Doug because he just ate them whenever he turned up at our house. And she thought that I really liked apricot delights. Yeah, and you hated them. You liked no, they're all right. No, you like licorice bullets. I like licorice bullets. When she found out about that, she sent you some. But that was too little, too late, wasn't it, Alex? No, your mum's the best. All right. Um. Anyway, guys, that was Weekly Ways for the Week. I'm Will. That guy's Alex. Next, <laughs> next week, we're talking to Daniel Hackett, um, exercise science researcher from Sydney University. He's done. He was the person who originally validated the reps and reserve version of the RPE scale. Um, was a co-author of the recent German volume training bodybuilding studies, and he's done two recent analyses which are due for publication on resistance training and women. One which is just investigating what the important training variables appear to be for getting training responses out of women. So that's just pretty basic stuff that most of us will already know. But then building off of that, he's doing some comparative research talking about what types of training responses we might see in women as compared to men, where and how and possibly why they differ. So it should be a very interesting episode. Tune in then. Um, We'll talk to you then. Until then. Goodbye. Goodbye.